Welcome to APAC Weekly, a showcase of conversations on the APAC network with Asia Pacific's brightest minds. I'm Oriel Morrison. Coming up, how nanotechnology is about to reshape manufacturing, space as a new global security battleground, and preparing for the biggest show on earth. Next Generation Science is using nanotechnology to synthesize molecules on tiny electronically controlled chips, which are used to manufacture medicines, vaccines and energy storage materials. Professor Matt Trow from the University of Queensland joins us now to talk about this and tell us more. Um, Matt, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Tell us about the process. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having this segment. So we've developed a new way to manipulate and react molecules on a surface of a tiny chip that's electronically controlled. I've got one here with me, which I can show you. Let's see if this get this into the camera. There it is. This is a, uh, a chip. It looks a little bit like a computer chip, but on the surface are nanoscaled controlled electrodes that we manipulate and react molecules. And we're, it's still early days, it's a new discovery, and we're, we're lucky to have just been awarded an important grant in this area. But we're hoping this might usher in a new way of producing many of the essential molecules that we need. Essential medicines uh, for cancer therapeutics, for example, vaccines, uh, molecules that are used in energy storage materials, uh, molecules that are used to produce food. The idea is to produce these molecules on demand on these little chips. And the way to think about it is that in the same way as 3D printing on a larger scale has revolutionized the manufacturing of components and distributed them, imagine if we could do that sort of thing for molecules on a much more miniaturized scale. So that's um, the research that we're doing. And again, we're very lucky to have been awarded this new grant from the Australian Research Council to help us understand this process more and to start pushing it into areas such as cancer therapeutics, where these therapeutics could be made for patients on site. Mm. Now, Matt, you've said that this this uh, research could, in fact, disrupt manufacturing on a molecular scale. If you look out sort of five to ten years, and that's a very long time when it comes to technology, what could we be looking at using this technology? So our proof of concept was in an area called radiotherapeutics. So the way that works is you, you get a radioactive ion, I'm going to use my ear pods to simulate that, and a reaction is done to stick a guiding molecule onto that ion, which is then injected into a patient. The guiding molecule uh, targets the radioactive ion to the cancer and kills the cancer. Now, that is a really problematic, this is, this is one of the most exciting areas in cancer therapeutics right now. But what you need is you need to do it, you need to have a nuclear reactor and that makes the, the iron. Then you need to ship that to a, to a lead line facility. Um, with, and there's very few of those in Australia and there's not all that many around the world where this reaction occurs. You put these two together and then you need to, once you make this connection, then the medicine is only active for a few hours. So the patients have to fly in and wait for just that magic moment to get the injection of the life-saving medication. So by making the same process on a little chip like this, 
we remove all of those millions of dollars of facilities and we imagine a process where a whole patient dose could be delivered on demand in regional areas in mm. places like Longreach, et cetera, et cetera, without the need of, for the patients to come to centralised cities, et cetera, et cetera, to get, to get that life-saving medication. So we've already shown that we can make a whole patient dose on this sort of device inside of a, a small lead-shielded um, uh, system. And for that, that's, for us, that's a major breakthrough. And we think is something that could be used in the next three to five years as we mm. develop it further. But also it's got us excited about, well, if it worked for those molecules, there's no limit to which molecules we can program the chip to assemble and we can move to other, uh, the, the other essential molecules that I've mentioned. So I think probably the first out of the gate will be the radiotherapeutic application for which there's a really big need in the world at the moment and others will follow. So Matt, tell us about the commercial opportunities then if this tech of course does become globally scalable. We're very interested in partnering with uh, corporations that wish to work with us to develop and translate this brand new technology as new ways of, of on-demand manufacturing. And, and we, we don't see a limit. Uh, we see, again, applica applications in um, uh, cancer therapeutics, medicines, vaccines, uh, essential molecules for, uh, for battery systems. Uh, as we, you know, we're still early days in the research of understanding how these processes work. As I've mentioned, we've made the first prototype. That's early, but it's still very exciting. And the other point that I'll, I'd like to make, if I could, is because we don't use a catalyst on these electrodes. Catalysts accelerate chemical reactions, but often they're toxic and they have an environmental impact. The electrical impulses that we add to the chip are the catalyst. Each molecular system has its unique electrical impulse. We think that's a much more environmentally friendly way of manufacturing these molecules mm. with a, a kind of footprint on the planet. And I'm sure there are many other environmental benefits as well, Matt, because, you know, when you look at the manufacturing sector as a whole, it is one of the world's worst emitters. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, it's a big emitter in terms of the energy that's required. One of the reasons we need new catalysts, catalysts are are usually molecules that help accelerate chemical reactions. It just means that we would need to burn less coal. I don't mean to put it in simple terms, but we burn less coal for the energy that we need to drive those, molecule, those molecules into the, the reactions that we like. So on these chips, we don't need as much energy because we're using electrical impulses to catalyze those reactions. So we think it'll have a much kinder environmental footprint, which is something the world needs. Space is becoming a very busy place with no fewer than seven missions planned during the next year. Many companies are involved with various ventures being deployed from India, Japan, Russia, South Korea, the UAE and the US. It is of course a high stakes game of exploration, security and the potential riches of untapped resources that lie on the moon and far beyond. Thomas Doremi joins us now, Senior Vice President of the Space Foundation. Thomas, welcome. So good to have you with us today. Oreo, thank you. Thomas, with so much at stake for the ultimate victors in the second space race, and of course knowing that the modern rules of engagement in space are yet to be written, should we be concerned about how this plays out? 
Uh, Oriel, I wouldn't say we should be concerned. And I, I don't know if I would characterize it as looking for a victor of the second space race. Certainly space has become more contested over recent years. And, and there is, as you mentioned, a lot at stake. Uh, but I think we've seen uh, coordination with partners. We've seen some momentum on trying to establish rules of norms uh, that I wouldn't be afraid of where we're going. I'm, I'd be optimistic, but also cautious about making sure we're heading in the right direction. And I think this is key. You know, you, you talked about sort of, I suppose, working together, but who should be setting the rules of the unknown, which is essentially where we're going when we're talking about space? It, true. And I think you mentioned at the beginning the number of players that are in there. there. There's even more now. And if you look at the number of spacefaring nations and those that are helping protect that infrastructure, um, I, we believe space is a critical infrastructure. I think that's been detailed in a number of ways. Uh, and I think those there's a couple of government bodies that should be doing things and I know are doing things, the UN for one. Uh, coalition uh, through NATO partnership, European Union partnership should be doing other things. But I think establishing a stable uh, rules of behavior and norms in space will be pivotal to make sure we move in the right direction. So, so where does the US drafted Artemis Accord sit um, within this framework, Thomas? Uh, I think it's a, a good base. I think uh, the accords like this which are somewhat non-binding, but at least move uh, forward in the direction that uh, we want we want to go and nations want to go, um, it starts to establish that, that behavior and those rules and norms that others can coalesce around. I, I think much more has to be done than, than is outlaid in the Artemis Accords. And I think you see a momentum stirring for that to happen. I, I think it's still going to take a lot to get something as a treaty um, in space, done. We our, our last treaty's been many years, so getting a, getting a new one won't be an easy challenge. Mm. So, so at this stage, when we're looking at these accords, we've got 19 countries uh, signed up to those accords, which of course we should point out are non legally binding. Um, China and Russia, almost I suppose, as to be expected, are the two countries that are leading the charge against uh, the accords, and and they're saying essentially that these safety zones within the accords are thinly disguised land grabs. And I guess this is sort of what I was alluding to when we first started our conversation about whether or not we should be concerned about where this space race is ending up, and, and as you pointed out, whether or not it should indeed be called a race, um, if you like. So with this, I mean, when it comes to Russia and China's involvement in this, how would you, as v Senior VP of the Space Foundation, respond to that? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any surprise that there's going to be um, so, some disagreement with the Accords, especially with, with China and Russia wanting to establish a, a base of the accord. So I, I'm not surprised to see their position on it. Um, I, I don't think their position is founded. And I think that if, if we look at it objectively, it isn't about a land grab. It, it's about uh, those countries, those nations that want to make sure that space is used, used for peaceful methods and used in a way that can be cooperative, um, move forward in the right direction. So I think there is room for negotiation and there is room to even further uh, put better detail and better um, restrictions and clarifications in some of these accords. But I, I wouldn't say that it's a land grab. Mm -hmm. I, I would I would agree with you, though. There is positioning on many sides um, to ensure that space is used. I, from my perspective, from Space Foundation perspective, I would say that we believe that moving out with the accords, the Artemis Accords as they are, 
moving out with other rules of behavior, establish a, 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 a solid framework to move forward from. So, you know, in, in, in looking into the situation in space as it stands right now, it seems that there is some concern about China's position when it comes to these, these uh, accords. What is there currently, Thomas, to stop a similar situation happening in, happening in space that we're seeing in, in, for example, the South China Sea? Um, I, I don't know if there's a way to stop it, right, immediately. I mean, we have seen acts of aggression in space or we've seen demonstrated capabilities that could lead to aggression in space. And I, and I think um, that is a concern. As you bring out South China Sea, I mean, you, you look at that, you know, the, the right to navigate in, in, in free waters. I mean, space should be the same thing. And, I, uh, and you can use that kind of comparison well. And so um, what's to stop China um, we believe that the more nations that, that group together, if you treat space as a critical infrastructure, you put measures and mechanism and you establish these rules, then hopefully everybody can conform to that. And then and, and that body and that momentum what will help China conform to it. And when they violate those, it will give a framework for people to judge that violation against. Mm -hmm. Now, you've talked about critical infrastructure. Of course, there are valuable resources on, on the moon worth billions and billions potentially of dollars and resources elsewhere in space, perhaps that at this point in time we don't even know about. Is there a role for the military here or is it way too early to be talking about military intervention in space? Um, there is a role. Um, I, I'd be cautious of different words. Um, I wouldn't say military intervention, um, just like we've we've um, trust the Navy's doing peaceful exercises and, and creating um, uh, putting uh, naval forces out there to allow for navigation and free navigation of the, of the seas. I think we see the same thing in space. I think ensuring that there are deterrent capabilities and ensuring that um, that military is that military that is um, focused on ensuring that that critical infrastructure ma maintains. I think that deterrence will help establish this freedom of maneuver within space and help protect that critical critical infrastructure. It's the biggest show on earth and sport is only part of it. In 10 years time, Brisbane will host the Olympics and planning is already well underway. Staging the games is one thing, but it's the legacy they leave behind that ultimately determines success for the host. Dr. Carolyn Rio is director, Brisbane 2032 Engagement at Griffith University, and she joins me now. Caroline, would you agree that sport is just the centerpiece of a much bigger story when it comes to hosting the Olympics? Absolutely. We're leading with sport and it's a pleasure to be discussing this because we really think that the impact and the legacy of the Games, as you mentioned, really um, should be the focus because of the, the dividends, the contributions that it can make really to not only Queenslanders, but to, to the region and the globe. What are you most excited about looking at the 2032 opportunity for Brisbane, Queensland and Australia? I think it's putting the Pacific on the map, I'd like to say. So if we think back to the number of games that we've had in the region, there's only been the two. So we've had the 1956 Melbourne Games, the Sydney 2000 Games, and now the Brisbane Games. And this has really been touted as the Oceania Games. So even in the bid documentation, it was described as a games for, for the region. So I think this is our time now to really bring along our neighbours and ensure that we have that um, bright 
future and opportunities sort of laid out for us. But but beyond that, that sports space. So we very much heavily are involved in the sport development component, but also thinking more longer term around, for example, um, our, our engagement with the sustainable development goals. We've had the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. What learnings will come from that experience? Oh, it's just incredible. So in our lead up to the Games, what we did was actually hosted a range of international training camps on the Gold Coast. And that was really to support our Pacific neighbours in ensuring that athletes and coaches had access to the best possible experience in the lead up to to the Commonwealth Games in, in 2018. And for the first time ever, some of those countries received their first medals. Uh, they participated sort of in that acclimatisation training program across three different opportunities. And um, look, the, the impact was, was, was monumental. What we did also see is that um, program has expanded. So in the lead up to the Birmingham Games in 2022, the program's really gone global. So we took athletes from Oceania across to Birmingham and we had, in fact, 90 um, 93 athletes and coaches in the para sports space joining us in Birmingham from all around the world from this, this knowledge gain that we've had to, to really ensure that we could reach out to, to others in lots of different areas to, to bring them along that journey. And that's only one example of what a major event um, can do uh, for the region. You've had a particular interest in sustainability. So tell us about some of the initiatives you'd like to see implemented for Brisbane 2032, even down to the athletes' clothing. Oh, you're right. So thinking about our social procurement and also sustainable procurement, um, look, there's some real, real strong opportunities um, for businesses. Sustainability also brings us to the conversation around um, the climate positive games and what that means globally. So if we're to benefit in terms of, you know, the Queensland's action in this area, then that will have paid dividends for, uh, for the region as well. Um, so I think that's a really important um, component to be thinking of. Sustainability, we could also reach into the conversations around affordable housing and accommodation and um, also thinking about, you know, what we are building and how we are building that for communities, not just connected to the games at the time, uh, but what that means in the long term. That, that is a big conversation that's ongoing at the moment, isn't it? That, that housing issue. It is, it is. And it's not only um, in Brisbane, but, but also if we if we think across the, the regions, I mean, that's a real priority as well for some of our Pacific nations um, and the impacts, of course, of climate change on, on that, on those people. So we try to use sport in many ways as the vehicle, as a tool. It's often touted as a um, diplomacy tool to engage um, with our neighbours to ensure that we are identifying their needs and addressing their needs in, in some ways. Um, and some of that is through knowledge sharing, it's through knowledge transfer, it's through capitalising on, you know, what we do know works and sharing that knowledge um, across, across the waters. 2032 is uh, so much more than sport and gold medals. Caroline, very exciting times ahead. Thank you for joining us on the APAC Network. My pleasure. Thank you. People living with obesity are often stereotyped, dehumanised and can become the subject of ridicule, according to a new paper published in Public Health Research and Practice. The blueprint sets out a pathway for Australia to overhaul the way that the nation deals with obesity. Dr Blake Lawrence joins us now. He's a lecturer at Curtin University. Blake, welcome. You undertook this research along with a collaboration of other universities. What was the most important finding? 
Yes, thank you for speaking to me today. So really, the most important finding is that we're trying to highlight that weight stigma is a serious problem for people living with overweight and obesity in Australia. And we really need to start advocating for changes uh, within the public health context to address weight stigma and the negative impact it has on so many people living with overweight and obesity. So that stigma is coming from people who work within the health industry against people who, who present as obese? Well, for people living with overweight and obesity, they experience stigma in many different settings. Uh, but one of the most important settings is public health and the medical professions where we found through the research that we're doing that stigma exists in a lot of healthcare settings. So for people living with overweight and obesity, if they're attending an appointment with their healthcare practitioner and they're feeling stigmatized, they're feeling judged about their weight, it's really leaving a negative impact on them and they're less likely to participate in the healthcare system. So is it not the case anymore that being overweight or obese is linked to being unhealthy? It's basically that obesity is really complex and living it with a higher weight can have negative health implications but it's the framing that changing your weight is the almost like the only cause to improving your health or the only impact it can is improving your health so we're trying to change the way that we frame these conversations around instead of focusing on weight loss everything we need to change the conversation around focusing on improving health and once we can improve people's health then it's likely that they it could lead to weight loss um, in addition to health improvements. So is it a case of looking at the mental health of the patient before the physical health? Yes, well, that's the research that, that I'm doing here at Curtin shows that there are many psychological factors that relate to why people gain weight. So you really need to understand a lot of the background of a person, um, their psychological reasons, their social, their environmental reasons that all contribute to why someone has gained weight and developed obesity. So that really needs to be the first focal point for many healthcare professionals before they start providing recommendations about how to change their lifestyle, maybe through diet and exercise. I guess that's always been the, the first port of call, hasn't it, diet and exercise, but there are many more drugs coming onto the market and some being remarketed from, from diabetes drugs to weight loss drugs and obviously people going for, for surgery maybe more regularly than before. Are those all things that are helping people who, who do end up becoming obese? To, to kind of navigate through their lives? I mean, that's right. So there are many new um, options available, interventions available for people living with overweight and obesity. Surgery is sometimes an, op an option for people and there are new drugs coming on the market that are showing a lot of promise for people to help them lose weight. And I think that's the thing is that there should be as many options available for people if they're trying to improve their health and lose weight. And it's really about keeping all the options open on the table and providing a really welcoming environment in these healthcare settings to ensure that if someone is coming to see their health professional and they are seeking help, that they aren't going to then experience stigma in the process. So how does your research address that and the injustices that people who are obese are facing? So the research that we've published today has three key recommendations. The first is that people living with overweight and obesity really need to be involved in the research process. So researchers working in this field like myself really need to work with people in our community to understand what are the problems that they are experiencing and how can we address them with our research. Uh, the second key recommendation is that weight inclusive policies really need to be implemented in healthcare settings. And this is around health professionals really being aware of maybe some of their own stigma or biases that they may have, and then really trying to um, ensure that that isn't going to impact on the patient um, practitioner relationship. 
And the last point from our research today is that uh, the weight policies promoted by public health and the campaigns that they run really need to be the starting point for us to change the discourse around weight stigma in Australia. So is that what you'd be looking for then? What would success look like with those recommendations in mind? I like to think of it as how we think about mental health in Australia now. If we go back 10 or 20 years, there was a tremendous amount of stigma surrounded with mental health, but we've made massive advancements in our understanding of mental health and it's become just a part of daily life and people can seek a lot of help to address their mental health concerns. And I think obesity needs to have that transformation as well. If we can adopt the approaches that we've done with mental health to reduce that stigma in obesity, then I think we're actually going to start tackling the, um, you know, the rising rates of obesity in Australia. Yeah, we have seen such a huge change in the way people address mental health and how people discuss it. But who does the responsibility lie with to start to change that discussion around obesity? Well, it's a collaborative approach, but I do think that public health practitioners and researchers really have the um, the starting point here when it comes to changing the discourse. They have so much influence over the policies that are implemented by the government and those policies really do feed into how we live our lives in different ways. So I think public health practitioners and researchers really need to sort of carry the baton here and start making the changes in the discourse. And with that, we can then start to see additional changes, you know, in our communities, in research and working with healthcare professionals. Thank you for joining us on APAC Weekly. I'm Oriel Morrison. To stay across the important conversation shaping our future, visit us at apacnetwork.com.